What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Ross Gerber is the co-founder and CEO at Gerber Kawasaki, an investment and asset manager. In this conversation, Ross and I talk about Bitcoin, Twitter, Tesla, Elon Musk, and much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Ross, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I first want to talk about our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Copper. Since 2018, Copper has been at the forefront of institutional digital asset development. From award-winning custody solutions to creating the first truly off-exchange settlement function, Copper pioneers technology, products, and services in lockstep with a rapidly changing world. No other infrastructure provider covers as many assets across as many exchanges with the speed and security that Copper can offer. To learn how Copper helps the world's largest institutional investors secure their digital assets, head over to copper.co. Again, Copper, the unfair advantage. Check them out at copper.co today. This episode is sponsored by Compass Mining, the world's largest marketplace for mining hardware and hosting. With Compass, everyone can mine Bitcoin. Their team makes it easy to start mining wherever you want, at home or in one of their 23 hosting facilities around the world. Through the Compass Marketplace, retail miners can access mining hardware with similar prices and purchase plans as the world's largest mining companies. Simple and low-cost hosting agreements coupled with best-in-class customer service are the reasons why Compass is the simplest and most popular way to mine Bitcoin. Make sure to check out all of their new Compass Score online resources developed to help you make an informed decision on your next mining purchase. With a growing number of listings on our marketplace, the Compass Score allows customers to easily compare and contrast, highlighting the standout listings in real time and identifying the best listings available. Start mining your own Bitcoin today by visiting compassmining.io. Again, visit compassmining.io to start minting your own Bitcoin today. This episode is brought to you by Bullish. Bullish is a powerful new digital asset exchange built for institutions that delivers the innovations of DeFi in a regulated environment. The Bullish Hybrid Order Book pairs the high performance of a traditional central limit order book with the automated market making. Powered by deep bullish liquidity pools backed by the multi-billion dollar bullish treasury. So you can trade with certainty and at scale across variable market conditions. You can learn more at bullish.com or follow Bullish on Twitter because the future belongs to the bullish. Now, this is not investment advice. Digital assets and cryptocurrencies are high-risk products. Consult your professional advisor before dealing in them. Bullish services are available in select locations only and not to U.S. persons. Visit bullish.com slash legal for important information and risk warnings. Go check them out at bullish.com or follow at bullish on Twitter. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Ross, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine. Long time. I know. How uh, how have things been going? It seems like uh, a lot of things that you were excited about uh, maybe a year ago or so, they're all uh, playing out pretty nicely there, my friend. Yeah, you know... So far, so good. You know, we, we're having a little uh, interlude as the Fed, you know, gets its act together this year. But, you know, we we like the opportunity in the markets right now. And we're seeing some nice fear and I, I like it. 
Let, let's talk Fed first, because I think that's kind of what's on everyone's mind. We're recording yeah. this uh, the day of the FOMC uh, meeting. We're expecting them to go ahead and announce a 50 basis point hike. Uh, it seems like, you know, on the last two years, don't fight the Fed. They're pushing everything up. Just get long and, uh, and chill. Now they're intentionally pushing things down. Um, and so maybe you don't want to be as long as you, as you previously were. Is that the trade of the decade? Is just whatever the Fed tells you to do, do it, and then you win? It's pretty much the trade of the last three decades, really, if my whole career. You know, there's only one person that's ever killed the economy, and that's the Federal Reserve chairman. And, you know, even Greenspan did it. And, and you know, actually, Powell did it in 18. You'd think he would have learned his lesson in 18. Um, but right now, we went from a stage, you know, if you look at it from the pandemic was probably the worst economic event in American history. We shut down the entire economy and, and we made up for it by printing tons of money and having, you know, just a free for all at the fed. And now, you know, it's worked and things are really good in the economy and the fed has to just like get back to normal. And people look at that as like the end of the world when it's actually what's supposed to happen. So so valuations come back to normal. I, I don't see this as any crazy thing. So you just got to like kind of wait until the Fed's done with their game and then we're game on again. You know, what, what do you think they're going to end up doing? So uh, the market's pricing in 50 basis points today, yeah. uh, 2.75 to 3% by the end of the year. Do you think they can hike that much or do you see them stopping at some point? Maybe there's even, will there be a Fed interest rate cut before the end of the year? How do you think about this? <laughs> well, that would be the classic fed, you know, you see that a lot with the fed where they raise too fast and then they're like, Oh, and then they do this like one cut just to make the market happy and get the economy going again. That's actually not uncommon. Um, that's what I, I think. think that's that, what I think they're going to do by the way. That That's my uh, bet. It's is, not uncommon. Yeah. You know, like that wouldn't surprise me at all because what I actually think is, you know, you have this pandemic, you know, stimulus response thing where now, everybody's partying like crazy and going out like crazy and, you know, trying to go to Europe this summer is impossible. And, you know, every event is sold out from Coachella uh, to the Met Gala or whatever. And so when you, when you look at what people are doing, they're out and they're spending money and, and that'll calm down, you know, in six months or a year as people like go back to normal and, and sort of get it out of their system. But I still think, you know, that it'll take a while and people have jobs and they're getting raises and they're spending money. So this is a really good backdrop for the Fed to raise interest rates into. The, the bottom line is they're behind the curve. And that's why I'm not so concerned about them right now is, is I think one and a half to two is probably where they need to be right now. You know, and so they're not there. So they got to catch up to one and a half to two. But once I think they get to one and a half to two, they're going to have to really reassess where the economy really is because high oil prices and high inflation does uh, affect spending eventually and, and people will spend less. And, and so I think um, as we get towards the elections, we'll see the economy slow and inflation come down. And I think the Fed will have less pressure on them to be aggressive. Yeah. One of the things that I keep going to is if we already had the, you know, kind of annualized 1.4% contraction in Q1, uh, if they continue to hike the interest rates, they push us more towards uh, not just a slowdown in the economy, but a full-on recession. And, right. you know, I joke all the time that like, what's worse than high inflation for a politician going into an election is a recession. And right. so if we get to uh, a true recession where people are feeling it, and it's very obvious that it's here, uh, regardless of what's happening with inflation, I think that the Fed 
that will just get pressured, right? It's just, hey, yeah, I, I just don't think that's stuff. a reality this year. You know, like I don't think the Fed can hike fast enough unless they're just crazy to cause a recession this year. What I'm worried about is like the, the beginning, middle of next year where it's like all this stuff finally compounds up. We get through Christmas and and travel and 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 maybe there's another surge of some sort. And then we look into, you know, the first half of next year looks real bad. But but I actually don't think that's going to happen either. I, I I think the Fed will do everything possible to avoid creating recession. They they will lower rates, they will print money, they will do anything they need to do to prevent a recession. So I I'm not that concerned about it because the demand is so high for labor right now. Yeah. When you start thinking about various assets in the market, obviously stocks, I think uh, people understand, hey, when uh, when the Fed's got the money printer on, they go up. When they stop, uh, they go down. And that seems to be what uh, most people are uh, are experiencing at the moment. When you're talking to clients, like how do you talk about uh, these types of environments? Is it a thing of like, hey, just try to get into cash and just hold cash? Is it yeah. no st- actually buy the dips or like what, what what's kind of the general talk track? Well, we're typically managing stocks and bonds for clients. So, you know, when this all started with the inflation stuff and the Fed a few months back, I sold all of them, you know, sold all my bonds pretty much. Um, I'm much more concerned about bonds than stocks because stocks actually do okay in inflation because you get higher pricing, you know. Um, it's it's bonds that just have like negative value, you know. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, if you're buying a two or even a 3% you know, treasury bond, you're losing a lot of money right now. So that makes no sense to me at all. Like, and then there's no upside, right? Like what's your upside in a bond today? It's negative, right? So, so bonds are really where the highest risk is because you have no real upside and you have lots of potential downside. So we immediately moved to more cash. So we're holding like more cash than I really like by a large amount right now because we just don't really have much of a bond allocation. So we're looking at in inflation protected treasuries and, and floating rates are really the only game in town. And then these like high yields, like, you know, AMC bonds are paying 14% still. So, you know, stuff like that. So you hold a lot of cash and, and then on the equity side, what we have is actually equities are, are in a way fine. It's just, we're having PE contraction and PE contraction obviously hurts growth names like that I typically like more than it, you know, affects Campbell soup and, you know, Chevron. So because we don't own Campbell's soup and Chevron, we're underperforming substantially right now. And we know this, you know, like, cause we're not going to start buying Campbell's soup and Chevron because these are just temporary shifts in the market as we have this rising interest rate environment um, and rising inflation environment. And so you just have to be patient, you know, like I've done this for so long and, and you want to buy and trade and you want to make money on the upside and it's just not going to happen right now, you know? Yeah. And and when you start to think about this, so let's go to- So that's what I tell clients. You just have to be patient, you know, like they want to make money every year. I make 15% a year for these people in in a 60, 40 portfolio. And then we finally have a bad year and they're like, oh my God. And I'm like, dude, look at the last five years, you know, we've averaged 15% a year, including this year right now. I'm like, we were way above trend line. Like, what did you think? It, it, it happens. So, you know, most of my clients have been around, you know, I've been doing this almost 30 years. So, so it happens every 
cycle, you get the rising interest rate period of time, and you got to sit on your hands. Yeah. When, when you think about some of those growth stocks, I think Tesla is probably one of the uh, the biggest ones, one of the most popular ones. Uh, I know that you're a, a huge fan of Elon uh, and of Tesla. Talk to me a little bit about what uh, what you think about uh, kind of that business and, and uh, maybe headwinds or tailwinds that it has. Well, tes- Tesla, I would say, is the exception to all the things I was just saying, because they're executing so well and the environment for Tesla couldn't be better with, you know, gas, $6 a, a gallon here in LA. All you see are Teslas like everywhere now, you know? So like, you're almost like an idiot if you go out and like, I saw somebody just bought a new Explorer in my parking lot. And I'm like, you must be like an idiot. You know, it's like, you're going to pay $6 a gallon for 15 miles a gallon in traffic or 10 miles a gallon in traffic in LA. I'm like, you're spending $150 a week just driving your kids around to baseball and stuff. And I'm like, I spend nothing. You know, I'm like, if you don't like inflation, you go buy an EV. It's simple as that. And so people are. And so the demand is far outstripping the supply. And the real game is supply. Can we make cars? And and with China, that's just been a huge problem. So China is the biggest problem for the global economy right now. It makes interest rates seem like nothing. Honestly, like I don't even spend any time worrying about the Fed. I'm worried about China because we make a lot of stuff in China. We make cars in China. We make phones in China. We make half the stuff I own makes stuff in China, you know, and China's like whack-a-mole with COVID, which is definitely a losing game. And, you know, it's a mess. It's just a mess. So it's hard for Tesla to manufacture right now in China, which is their best market to sell and manufacture. And we have new plants that are coming up in Austin, and in Berlin, but we're, you know, 12 months from efficient, you know, production. And so it's a really great time for Tesla right now, but, but this is a super challenging time as well. Yeah. It makes a, makes a lot of sense. Obviously Elon uh, has, has done a fantastic job building that business. Uh, he now has, <laughs> he's turning his, uh, his attention to Twitter. Uh, he, yeah. a couple of things here. So like one, just like, what's your general read on uh, the whole Twitter situation? Are, are you a fan of Elon doing this? Do you think it's a distraction? How, how do you read it uh, to start? <laughs> Well, I'm going to tell you some things, Pomp. You know, a lot of there's a lot of misinformation going around about this whole Twitter thing. And I just read in the paper that the head of the CIA flew out to Saudi Arabia last month. And I think it was to tell him that we were taking Twitter back from them. And that's what this is really about. Whether people want to, you know, worry about Donald Trump being on the platform. Oh, no, God forbid. <laughs> You know, the right wing might have free speech or or this or that. What it's really about is foreign interference in our elections, in our democracy. It's gotten to a horrible situation in America and in Western governments. Now with the war in Ukraine, it's become so obvious the misinformation um, that's put out on Twitter daily, the constant attacks, the bots. Um, it's became a national security issue for the United States, became a major issue for um, Tesla, because Tesla uses Twitter as its main advertising vehicle. And Elon felt it was time to step in and take this asset back from the foreign actors that have been manipulating it. So a couple of questions. First is, uh, you think Saudi Arabia owns Twitter or like, like what? What's the I, they do thing? own Twitter. They own 6% of Twitter, but I think they control Twitter internally. And in, in, in what way? Like, do you think it's part of like the content moderation decisions? Do you think that they've got some yeah. sort of leverage over the executive team? Like, tell me more about that. 
I think they've implanted people in executives from all the way through the company that are acting to uh, help with the misinformation campaigns that have been so effective on social media, Saudi Arabia and Russia being the two biggest beneficiaries of these misinformation campaigns. Um, we have a very insidious thing going on in social media and with Instagram and Facebook, we have no ability to get control of these assets because Zuckerberg controls it like the great overlord of misinformation. Um, and we're seeing it in countries like India where Modi has used it to oppress uh, people and really uh, fervent nationalism against the Muslim pop population in, in India and, and it creates violence and, and, you know, oppression essentially. So Zuckerberg and Sandberg are perfectly fine with all of it as long as they make money. Um, and I think people like Elon had had enough of this stuff. So, so, you know, now, he's stepping in and using his considerable financial might to do something that I think that's going to be a benefit to our society and very profitable for ultimately Twitter shareholders. So he, my understanding is he's basically putting up some of his Tesla shares as collateral uh, and then also getting a you know bunch of financing and, and kind of putting together what is going to end up being a somewhat complex deal. Uh, as a Tesla yeah. shareholder, do you worry about the Tesla shares being uh, collateralized to help finance the, uh, the acquisition of Twitter? No. What, what, what do I mean, you like, like, how do you, it's a, it's, a, it's a 20, it's like a 25% margin position. So it's mm -hmm. not like he's highly leveraged in it. And, and quite frankly, I think the Tesla shares are the most valuable shares in the stock market. So, you know, I, I don't really spend much time worrying about that either because, you know, like when Elon sold shares last week, it was like to a benefit of the public because he's not like not operating Tesla. He went from owning 17% of Tesla to 16% of Tesla and it pushes the price down and allows other investors to buy Tesla stock at a cheaper price when we all know the information that's out there that Tesla is executing brilliantly right now in a product that's in such high demand that they really just can't supply it. And um, what I, I'm seeing from yesterday is it looks, and this is what's going to happen next. So, so maybe this is the first place I'm really saying this is that uh, Tesla is prepared to build a second gigafactory in Texas and a second gigafactory in Shanghai. And I expect formal announcements for that fairly soon. So you think that they're going to build a second gigafactory in Texas and a second one in Shanghai, uh, along with the plans that they've already publicly announced? Yeah. What, why do you, why do you think that that is, uh, is the plan? Because I thought about it last night long enough. <laughs> you know, you just did some thinking and you just said, hey, if I was uh, Tesla, this is what I would do. Like, I can't tell you everything, you know, like I, uh, my sources of information are deep, really I, deep. I dig, I dig a deeper hole than anybody in my business about the companies I own. And the amount of people and information I get about Tesla there's nobody knows more about Tesla in the world than me, maybe a couple other investors, but very few. Um, and, and that's, what's going to happen next. Okay. So uh, I surmise all the information data points that I get, and then I perceive what the next strategic decision, my man, Mr. Musk is going to make. And I look at the reality of the situations and, that's what's going to happen next. Are, are you and Elon boys? Like you guys text no. or, or like hang out or anything? No. No? I, I thought that no. I saw you guys tweeting at each other on Twitter or something. We tweet at each other all the time. Oh, all right. You know, because. That's, that's I mean, boys in the digital like, world. No, no, you're boys. Like, what, like I went out to the cyber rodeo, you know, like I, I was like hanging out with his mom and 
and Kimball and, 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 uh, and his sister who's super cool, Tosca. And, and, you know, we're in the VIP area with all the VIPs, you know, and Elon's like, you know, twice the rock star I'll ever be, you know what I mean? He's like, he's like, people are like mobbing him. So I'm like, I can't even talk to the guy, you know, it's like, I can't even, I'm, you know, I'm not going to push through a hundred people to talk to him. Um, you know, I, I, uh, one day I'd, I hope to, to get a beer with Elon, you know? Yeah. I, I think that you could probably uh, figure out a way to get that done. Talk to me. Yeah. About- but it's like, you know, part of it is like, because I'm an investor and I'm, I'm in the media pretty much every day about Tesla, you know, I, I don't, I'm not access to information. Like I don't have a separate relationship with Elon that could create insider trading issues or conflicts yeah. of interest. So in a way it's like good that we don't have that relationship because I would probably be accused of lots of stuff if we did, even though it wouldn't be true. So, you know, I get all my information, you know, the way I get my information is not directly from board members or senior executives. So, so, you know, and, and, and that's, you got to play the game the right way. You know, I play the game the fair way and I play it the right way. Although I play it as right as possible, you know? Yeah. So that's where you get into potential issues. And, and I do talk to a lot of CEOs. I do. Um, and, and I really am trying to ascertain what type of people they are um, because it gets real, you know, you don't want to end up like uh, Diane von Furstenberg and uh, who is it? It's Barry Diller right now, insider trading. You know, they clearly were insider trading with Bobby Kotick, having lunch with them and then buying hundred million in options on Activision right before it gets bought out. I mean, come on. So when, when you think about uh, other stocks, Tesla, I think is the biggest position that you guys have as an individual yeah. stock. What, what's the second biggest? Right now, it's MGM Hotels. All right. What, what's the theory or, or thesis behind uh, MGM Hotels? So this is getting really good, okay? All right. So I like MGM, good. Like really good. Like I really like this. Like there's, you know, like there's technology investments in Bitcoin, which obviously the upside is just like crazy, right? And then there's like real investments, like real estate or hotels or whatever, you know? So technology always has the most upside potential in my mind. That's why it's the largest percentage of assets that we manage is in technology investments and including Bitcoin and things like that. Um, So when you think about the economy moving forward, fun is the most important thing right now. And so um, Vegas is in a rebound like I've never seen. So there's been a lot of adjustments to what's happening in Vegas over the last two years because of COVID. And, and many of the companies, including MGM, not only had begun building an online gambling business, but also were in the process of sort of reassessing their, their overall operations and the use of technology within the hotel and gaming space. And because of COVID, they were forced to implement large amounts of innovation that normally hotel and casino companies don't do very rapidly, you know? And so with this innovation, they've been able to increase margins into hotel substantially, like really substantially, because there were so many inefficiencies in the way hotels and casinos are run currently. So technology had an enormous upside in this leisure and hospitality area, and MGM rapidly employed it successfully. The CEO is really, really good, this guy Hornbuckle, and he's been working at the company a long time, knows the business, knows Vegas. So what happened was MGM decided not to own their buildings anymore and just be an operating company and sell off all the buildings for cash. And they've gotten all this cash over the years and they've been buying back stock and then like 
like upgrading casinos and then making trades. So they just sold the Mirage Casino and bought the Cosmopolitan. So the Cosmopolitan is the best uh, hotel casino in Vegas for fun, for young people. It's, it's just an amazing asset. So they got that. And they also took full control of City Center, um, which is Aria and Vidara. And so they've gotten full control of all these assets and, and then they sold off all the land and, uh, you know, sort of the buildings under it. And they just finished that with a deal with VICI properties where now MGM just got 4.4 billion in new cash, which they paid off debt um, doing these transactions and now bought this European online gambling company called, uh, I think it's called BetLeo or something like that, or Leo something. I don't know, just bought it. Um, now they're expanding online gambling. Now, if you look at what's happening in California, for example, they're trying to pass online gambling here in California. The Native American casinos have had this monopoly on it and BetMGM and DraftKings and, and FanDuel are trying to break this monopoly and, and get open in more states. But right now, I think they have 21 states or so with online gambling. So they've got all this convergence of the online with people going out and the and the two areas for MGM that are really tough are uh, their investments in Macau, which are basically shut down. So that's sort of like sort of this upside once China comes back, maybe in a year. And then you've got um, um, so so the Macau thing is 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 kind of the the dog of the company, um, but you've got this like rapidly growing convention business. And I think because of work from home, companies are going to be spending more and more money on getting together employees and things like conventions in Vegas. And then you've got um, really just an unbelievable amount of spending as people are going out again. And we're seeing the average person spend a huge amount of money. So then sports came to Vegas, you know? So now we've got the Raiders and, and the Golden Knights, but what's happening next is hopefully the Oakland A's are going to be moving to Vegas, we, we hope, and we expect a NBA expansion franchise uh, as well in Vegas. And we've got the uh, Super Bowl in 24 and Formula One at the end of 23. So Vegas has become this like sports city and it's hugely lucrative and complementary to the other entertainment that already exists in Vegas. So I've never been more bullish on the future of Vegas than I am right now. So when you start to think about this uh, and you see the, uh, a business like it, do you worry about the price at which you're buying or do you worry about like short-term price movements or do you just look at the fundamentals and say, hey, here is kind of our thesis on this and we're going to hold this for a long time. So the price at which we buy it or the short-term price fluctuations may not matter. No, price matters for sure. You know, during the pandemic, we got into MGM at nine bucks or something. So that was ideal. And the only reason I bought it was because I knew their cash financial position because they had just sold these casinos, you know, and, um, and it was, and it's been probably, I think it was one of the best stocks I bought in the pandemic, as far as returns are concerned, several hundred percent, but at 40 bucks, I don't think, you know, because it's hard to value because it really hasn't had earnings, you know, since the pandemic and they're about break even now. Um, but what it is, is what the assets are worth. And so when you like add up the equity value of the business, it's trading at sort of this traditional multiple, like two times the equity, which is, you know, pretty normal for casinos. But the growth right now and the way they change the business, I think un it's, it's undervalued by at least 20%, maybe 25% at the current price. So we, we value it closer to 50. It's trading at 40. So I like that. And they're solid assets. 
um, you know, Vegas isn't going anywhere. So the, the real boogeyman that I think is also super bullish for MGM is this Osaka project in Japan. You know, J- Japan's going to have, you know, gambling by the end of the century. And MGM is really in the lead for building this thing. And I, they released like the plans for this thing. And it's amazing. It's just amazing. Uh, it's an amazing development. I expect Japan to approve it. I think it'll be great for the Japanese economy. It's a great investment for MGM. And so when you look out over the next, so we're long-term investors. So it's 22 and I'm thinking about what 2030 is going to look like. Uh, MGM is going to be a substantially bigger company. Yeah. Fascinating thesis. Talk to me about Bitcoin. I know that uh, you've become uh, pretty bullish on Bitcoin, it seems, at least from uh, what I've seen you say publicly. Uh, I got a Bitcoin business. All right. Well, explain, uh, one, what your thoughts around Bitcoin are, and then tell us about the Bitcoin business. Well, you know, boy, you know, like, look at what's happening to our global system, right? I mean, we've weaponized the financial system. You know, so it's funny, Pomp, because I, I did this show with Peter Schiff the other day. <laughs> And boy, was that frustrating. You know, he, he, he's super annoying. Like, he's really, really hard to, like, even have an argument with because he doesn't listen. Like, he just doesn't care what you say at all. And and it's super frustrating. And, you know, I was trying to explain, you know, once again, the premise behind Bitcoin in that there should be a global currency that isn't controlled by a government. And there's so many instances even in the last year that I can say where this utility has been proven over and over and over again. Right now, if you're a Russian, you know, I have a friend who who lives in Thailand and he he's like, yeah, all the Russians travel there and they've been stranded, you know, like they're all stranded. And then their credit cards stopped working. So now they've all become like Bitcoin experts, you know, and and everybody, you know, in Thailand, you know, has to kind of get good at Bitcoin because all the tourists are now transacting in Bitcoin because their currencies are all like banned or whatever. And so when you start thinking about the way governments have weaponized finance and now what we're seeing with China and, you know, their goal to, you know, we're moving, we're deglobalizing right now. And that makes Bitcoin even more valuable as a global currency, you know, or a system of finance that doesn't involve governmental interaction. And, and so I think the utility of Bitcoin continues to grow. And what's happening now, what we're working on is we partnered with Gemini and we are building managed Bitcoin accounts for clients so that they can build portfolios with digital assets, just like they're building them in traditional assets. And our work with Gemini has led me to believe, kind of like when I'm talking about Tesla, I don't know if this is a fact, but it's led me to believe that soon companies like Gemini will be able to offer all types of securities, including stocks and bonds, in a digital wallet by tokenizing all assets. And maybe we'll be able to manage like people's collectibles, their real estate, like all their assets in theory in a digital wallet with Gemini. So we're working with them to build that right now. And we've been slowly because it's been, you know, a very manual process of building um, what I will consider the most advanced most amazing managed Bitcoin system for people who are not sophisticated enough to do it on their own. And when you think about this, uh, most clients, this is like one, 2%, this is like 10%, but what, what is most of the clients that you're talking to about Bitcoin? How are they thinking about this? Is no, hundred percent it- of clients today are interested in Bitcoin. 
They want to know more about it. There's a huge knowledge gap. That's an area that we're working on. You know, like tech people have a really hard time understanding humans that aren't tech people, you know, and, and that was kind of like Steve Jobs's brilliance. And that's what kind of Bitcoin needs is that person. Maybe it's me who can sort of explain it to the regular person in a way that they understand it and doesn't scare them away. And I think that's being done more by all these YouTubers and bloggers who are really bringing the message out in different ways to different people, especially underserved groups like the African-American community, which has really bought into Bitcoin, you know, like, and I think it's a wonderful thing, you know, because it's a community that's been inherently discriminated against by the banking system. So we have this enormous opportunity, but we have to educate people on how it works. And that's why the NFT thing pisses me off, you know, is like every time people get ripped off and every time people lose money, it just hurts the credibility of the system that we're building. Yeah, I tend to think that that is uh, uh, exactly what's happening. Uh, when you start to think about Bitcoin for clients, you said they're all interested in it, but there's a knowledge gap. How many of them are looking at it because it's an inflation hedge or uh, they're looking at it because they think they can get rich quickly? Like, like what's the driver that is really <laughs> pushing that interest? Well, always money. You know, greed is always the first driver of everything. You know, not that that's bad. You know, it's kind of like porn is always the first driver of internet, you know, uh, innovation, but like, I think we all understand the limitations of like Wells Fargo and JP Morgan controlling our financial system. They have abused our system for, I don't know, as long as they've existed and people don't earn any money in the bank. So the fed's going to raise, you know, interest rates, 50 basis points. They're not going to pay you 50 basis points in your bank. Right. So like Wells Fargo isn't going to like raise their interest rate by 50 basis points today. So how is that fair? Like what kind of system is that? So people don't want to hold their money in the bank. And we've been preaching this since I started in the business. Don't hold any money in the bank. Why would you want to hold money in a bank? They pay you nothing and they invest it and you have all the risk of the bank. Why would you have money in the bank? So people are saying well, like, why would I keep money in the bank? I can keep my money in crypto and that, and it becomes a store of value. And people are like, I'll just keep my money in crypto. And that's what I've done with my own money. It's like, why would I keep my money in the bank? They don't pay me interest on it. I can put it in Ethereum. I can put it in Bitcoin and, and, you know, over time it'll probably go up in value. I mean, that makes, uh, makes a ton of sense. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of people who, uh, as they learn more about it, they start to say to themselves, wow, I didn't understand this. I closed that education gap. Uh, maybe I'm educated enough and feel confident enough to store it myself. Maybe I need help with it. Uh, but it does feel like uh, there's a ton of people. And one of the metrics that I always look at is uh, the, number, the amount of Bitcoin that hasn't moved in the last year. The higher that percentage goes up, the more that just signals to me, people are understanding this idea of Bitcoin as savings technology. Yeah, buy right? and hold. Yeah. See, we buy and hold it. We we don't trade it for clients. Yep. Like we're not like trying to outsmart the Bitcoin market. You know what I mean? Like it's at, let's say 38,000 today. So we buy more today. You know, like we just buy Bitcoin just like we buy Tesla or we buy any stock. See, Bitcoin's easy in that there's a limited supply. Mm -hmm. So- it's a store of value just based off supply and demand, just like gold. And, you know, since gold really hasn't performed as it traditionally has, one of the reasons I suspect is a lot of that money has gone to Bitcoin that would traditionally have gone to gold. I don't know if that's true or not, but I suspect that may be true because gold should be soaring in this environment, right? And it really has been a piece of crap investment. So, so what, what, what's going on with gold? Do you think gold would be doing really well right now, actually? Right. 
all the same elements that make Bitcoin interesting, make gold interesting, yet gold hasn't performed. So I think investors are starting to look for the digital version of these things, and that's Bitcoin. But there's a utility with Bitcoin. You know, like I used the Lightning Network for the first time the other day, and boy, that worked pretty well. And all of a sudden, like on the Cash App, I did a couple transactions in Bitcoin, and it was like, wow, this works pretty well. And actually, Bitcoin has been the most solid currency in the world besides the dollar, you know, over the last six months, probably, right? Look at the ruble or the Turkish lira or or a lot of currencies. They've been like going crazy. And people are like, oh, Bitcoin's so volatile. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I mean, that is the way to look at it, right? Is that uh, it's all relative. Volatility is relative. And also volatility. Yeah, because, oh, sorry. Because I was to say, like, China is not going to want the dollar to be the reserve Correct. currency anymore for Correct. sure. And, and individuals are, are kind of saying, I don't want the one, or I don't want the dollar. I don't want the ruble. I don't want the Euro and all for good reason. Right. And, and what's left is, is Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes uh makes complete sense. Ross, I could talk to you forever. My friend, where, uh, where, where can we send people to find you on the internet or, uh, or find more about what you guys are doing over at Gerber Kawasaki? Well, you can always go to our website, GerberKawasaki.com. Of course, we help people manage their money, the stocks, bonds, crypto, and such. Um, we're probably the only firm that actually is integrated to all assets, digital and physical, I guess, other than physical real estate. And then at Gerber Kawasaki on Twitter, you can always follow me on Twitter. Um, that's I do put out a lot, a lot of stuff on Twitter um, or on our YouTube page at, at YouTube at Gerber Kawasaki. But uh, please follow along. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in young people investing in the future and the amazing technologies. Like I'm really, really bullish on the future. I, I feel lonely now because everybody's so bearish, but I'm like, look at what's being invented in America. Like we're bringing business back to America with all this great innovations happening in America, happening in Europe. And there's so much utility to things that we're building, whether it be this global financial system or like Starlink and the utility of a global internet system. Think about how great Starlink is for Bitcoin because I can't transact Bitcoin in the middle of nowhere if there's no internet connection. So all of a sudden sure. now I got Starlink terminals. Now I got Bitcoin globally, even in Antarctica. So, you know, now I got this global financial system that's irrelevant of a government. Now I got this global internet system, right? That's irrelevant of a government. Like, wow, there's some really cool things happening. I love so it. So I, I always love following you, Pomp, and I love what you're doing and, and the content you're putting out. And, and uh, so keep it up, man. I Thanks appreciate it very much. Before I let you go, uh, one of our sponsors is Eight Sleep. What's your sleep schedule? You told me that you used to not get that much sleep. You getting better sleep now? I always sleep pretty good. I, I'm a seven hour guy and, you know, cannabis. Cannabis, cannabis in seven hours and you're good to go. You got all the energy. Yeah. Cannabis before the seven. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. I appreciate you coming on. We, uh, we definitely got to get you back uh, soon and uh, let's see what, uh, what Tesla and Bitcoin end up doing. But, yeah. uh, you're carrying the torch, my friend. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. All right. Bye. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.